Since the beginning of the church, persecution has been part of the Christian experience. In fact, the Bible tells us that all who seek to live a godly life will be persecuted. Today, an estimated 360 million Christians are living under severe religious restriction. On this podcast, we share their stories. And we answer the question, how can American Christians live as Christ in an increasingly hostile culture? The way of the persecuted is the harder way. And this is the Harder Way Podcast. Hi, everybody. I'm Scott. And I'm Maddie, and welcome to the Harder Way Podcast. Why, thank you. In today's episode, we're going to be discussing how persecution simplifies our Christian experience. Interesting. So persecution makes things simple. Now, you know, if you study spiritual disciplines, one of the disciplines is simplicity. Yes. And that's really the choice to leave a sim- lead a simple life as a way of pursuing closeness with Jesus or growing closer to Jesus. But we're really not talking about the spiritual discipline of simplicity today. We're talking about how simplicity uh, that's forced upon you by persecution, by persecution leads to a different perspective on the gospel, on ministry, the church, and life in general. Yes. So I guess we could say that the Christian discipline of simplicity oftentimes primarily surrounds your material life, right? right? But when we're talking about persecution giving birth to simplicity, we're talking about spiritual simplicity and the simplicity of the Christian experience of Christians who are enduring persecution. Now, before we even go into this, one of the things that I have observed uh, in the world of spiritual disciplines and in just in Christian-y things. Christian-y is a word I just made up. Christian-y, Christian-y. Christian things that we do in general is that we tend to overcomplicate. We tend to gild the lily. The lily is already mm. beautiful. It doesn't need to be coated with gold. Yep. Right? And we want to avoid doing that today. We really want to give you, in our discussion of persecution-caused simplicity, We don't want to make it more than simple. Yes, because unfortunately, even when Christian authors and uh, speakers are speaking on simplicity, they complicate simplicity. Yes, fancy words. We want to keep simplicity simple. Right. Because it's not always simple, unfortunately. Because these things function, things like simplicity, they function as uh, ways, uh, things that that the Lord uses to make us close to him, to get us closer to thinking rightly about spiritual things, to get us closer to being like him. And we have a tendency, you know, well, these are the nuts and bolts of our faith. And we have a tendency to take those nuts and bolts and think, how can I carve a rose under the head of the bolt? And and you can only do so much to nuts nuts and bolts before they become useless. Mm, And we don't want to do that today. So that's the end of our podcast. (laughs) All right, that's all we wanted to say. Well, and I want to make a note, too, that when we're talking about these things, this is another example of of a situation where outward persecution Mm. is forcing uh, Christians into these circumstances. But we here in the United States, for this current time at least, are not in that place. And so this is another example, and we've talked about this concept several times in our podcast, about how Christians who are under persecution are forced 
to simplify. So right. they're being forced into a particular uh form of spiritual growth, but we can choose to do things that will help us get that same spiritual growth now. So we really want to talk about how persecution uh, kind of forces that simplicity, but how we can also have that same simplicity with or without worsening persecution here in the United States. Okay. So let me give you a little thought project and let's, let's kind of maybe think through. Me or the listeners? <laughs> you, the listeners too. Just All of us. Let's what, think together. If you were looking for a new church, okay, let's say you just moved to a neighborhood, uh, a, a suburb or downtown or whatever. Okay. You've moved to a new place and you're looking for a church. What are you looking for? How do you choose a church? I mean, and, and you're speaking as Am the I speaking average... the, for the average, not for myself? Yes. Okay. So being not myself and being the average person, I would say for most people, one of the first things they think at, they look at is what programs are available? What types of things does the church okay. have going on? Uh, they look at what churches are the same kind of denomination as me, have the same belief systems. Right. Um, they might look at, you know, is the, the pastor or primary speaker engaging, uh, charismatic? Do I enjoy listening to them? Typically you're going to see people really interested in what the music is like, you know, are the singers good or the instruments good? You know, how's, what's the music situation? Um, Okay, Those good. are probably some of the main things I would say that I think when I've had these conversations with people that I felt people yeah. oftentimes are looking for. I'm thinking back to years ago when I was pastoring and I had a lady call me and uh, you know I had a I had a church that was kind of the combination of two churches they they merged. merged and there were a lot of really hurt and broken people from the previous pastors of both churches and so I was as a very young pastor very inexperienced very lacking in knowledge mm. and uh, and ability and I was trying to navigate this and I remember a lady called me one day and she was interviewing me for if we were going to be be her church and she got towards the end of the interview and she was asking me about programs and about um, you know, my education and about just in, in never didn't really ask any doctrinal questions, which I thought was that weird. is interesting. Yeah. But towards the end of the conversation, I just told her, please don't come to our church. <laughs> you said, said, this probably is not going to be the place. No, for you. I have a name of a great pastor that I know. He has a great church and he's ready for you. You know, I, I just I can't take on one more project. I have, yeah. I have 150 <laughs> of them already. Um, I, and she was shocked. Why can't I come to your church? I was like, "You, if I answered you, you wouldn't understand." But uh, when you, you, the things you were sharing about choosing a church, I think that's really important. Now let's look at the persecuted church. How do you think a persecuted Christian, a Christian where the government has said you can't be Christians, you can't meet together, you can't evangelize young people, you can't have a Bible, and all those kinds of things? How does a person in that environment, and there's a penalty of, let's say, that prison's a penalty, or yeah. losing losing your job, or not being allowed to get food, those kinds of things. Um, what do you think their selection process would look like? Well, I think their selection process is one of the many things that's simplified, because I think that when a Christian who's under those circumstances is looking for a church, the only thing that they're asking themselves is, what, you know, where is the closest place where Christians are getting together and reading God's word and fellowshipping with one another? Mm -hmm. And that, I'm pretty sure that's the only question that's being asked. Uh, maybe, maybe it, can I walk there? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's really, and unless there's something just crazy uh, unbiblical going on, that's going to be your church. You know, these right. are these are the shocking little secrets. I mean, of the persecuted church, even the pastors, oftentimes, oh, I'm Baptist or I'm Assemblies of God or I'm, you know, uh, Church of God or whatever it is. And really, the reason why they are that denomination is because that just happened to be whatever the denomination is where they went to the church. Yeah, and you know, it's not because they were con- convicted that. That speaking in tongues is the first initial evidence of being baptized in the Holy Spirit, or that baptism in the Holy Spirit is a second blessing, or that Calvinism is right and Arminianism is wrong, or that we take one cup instead of multiple cups during communion, or we take communion once a week rather than once a month. Or <laughs> not being convinced of any doctrinal all, con- all those doctrinal uh, things um, have by necessity have to get set aside. Which actually takes us to our first point, which is that one of the ways that persecution simplifies the Christian experience is that persecution reveals the simple gospel. Right. And what and the simple gospel is that man is in charge of his own salvation. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait a sec. Wait. Man that's has not no right. choice in his... No, wait, that's not it either. What's the simple gospel? The simple gospel is, uh, you can see it very clearly in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. Yeah, by the way... Why is that two verses and not one verse? We don't yeah, know. We talked about that before. <laughs> uh, don't pay attention to the verse numbers. But persecution, uh, by necessity, makes Christians have to focus on that. They have to focus on John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. People are not able to take the time to focus on these peripheral doctrines or on other matters of preference and opinion. Because here in the United States, obviously people are choosing churches um, that align with their particular doctrinal uh, beliefs on kind of non-essentials. But sometimes it ev- it's just matters of preference and opinion, not even not even doctrine. So where you have two churches that are the same denomination, and then you might say, oh, well, I like the way that they do their music better, or I like the fact that they take communion with one cup, and I think that's what we should do, so I'm going to go here. Or they use real wine yeah, versus Brother Welch's unfermented, unfermented wine. wine, which is what uh, Welch's grape ju- juice was originally called. So if you're not using wine, you should be using Welch's brand grape juice only because yeah, that's not that <laughs> cheap nasty stuff that comes in those preformed cups. That's just a sin against everything. I'm pretty sure that's like I don't even know what that is, know. but it is nasty and it should it's not be. It's dyed purple for sure. Yeah. That's not its natural color, I, I can like, tell you that much. Drink this poison. There's <laughs> another scripture being fulfilled. Um yeah, you know what's really cool is that you you are forced to move beyond preference, and I, I think about this. I mean, when we, you go out to eat, uh, or or whether, let's say you have a meal at home, you know you have what do you want for dinner? Well, I prefer this. I want that. And a lot of us can remember back 30, 40 years ago, especially maybe in the seventies when times were a lot tougher and there weren't choices. Mm. You know, it wasn't oh I want this or that because there just weren't that many choices of what to have, and then it was limited on what your mother could cook or your father could cook, and then you you know. Um, you know, there were there, there weren't choices uh, like we have now, but now we have so many choices in every aspect of our life. We expect it as Americans to have all these choices, and we, yeah. and and all of those choices bring confusion. They bring division. Mm. They bring 
um, arguments and uh, between people, and they bring uh, isolation uh, one group from another. And these are all over preferential things. But Jesus said in John chapter 17, when he prayed for the believers, the future believers, he said this, I'm not asking on behalf of them alone, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their message, that all of them may be as one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. It's called the perichoresis. You, uh, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. I have given, I have given them the glory you gave me so that they may be one as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may be perfectly united so that the world may know. Why are they united? So the, the world, world may know. know that God sent Jesus and that he loves his disciples, his followers, just in the same way that he loves Jesus. It says in the scripture that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them just as you have loved me by being divided through our preferences or mm -hmm. through secondary doctrines. And yes, there are secondary doctrines. The primary doctrines are those that lead to salvation. Mm -hmm. Basically, the answer to the question, who is Jesus and what must I do to be saved? Right. right. Because even at, whether you're Calvinist or, or Arminian or some other uh, variation, um, you believe that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, and mm -hmm. it's not of your own. Is it a gift? It is a gift of God. You know, there's other aspects that you may disagree on, but that's the simple gospel, and we all, as Christians, mm -hmm. agree on that. And that, that Christian unity that Jesus was praying for can be seen in the persecuted church. Mm. And that's a really powerful thing because I feel that oftentimes, and maybe it's because of cancel culture, because here's the thing, we say that cancel culture is a thing of the world, but Christians have been guilty of their own version of cancel culture for a long time sure, and still are. We need to be honest there. And this fear of cancel culture oftentimes keeps Christians from different denominations from wanting to work with each other or be associated with each other right. because they may say, well, you know, if I'm a Baptist and they're Nazarene and we can't work together because then people are going to think that that's what I believe. And then my denomination won't like me anymore and I, they won't respect me and da, 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 da. And so then they're not working together, even though. A Baptist and a Nazarene have 99% in common. Right. You know, let's be real. It's all the, the smaller doctrines on the, on the outskirts that it would be different. They would be afraid to work together because of what people might think. But when you're under persecution, you're not caring about what other people think. You're not, you don't have, the, the, the fear of man gets very diminished when you're under persecution. And all you care about is following the Lord and fellowshipping with other people who are following him. And you don't have the time, you don't have the energy, you don't even, ha you don't have the desire to spend your, spend, spend your time and energy and everything on those small outside doctrines. It becomes all about the true simple gospel you know um in the soviet union uh, immediately following the fall of the uh, of the iron curtain basically and then the breaking up of of the soviet union uh russia uh was experienced an influx of western missionaries 
And as these missionaries came in, they, and they all had good intentions. Let's let's start. Most of them did. Some of them were just trying to build their own ministries, but most of them had. In general, most were good intentions. Yeah. And they, you know, they really had not. They didn't have an understanding of number one cross cultural ministry. Um, but they, uh, and so they made a lot of mistakes that way, trying to solve an Eastern problem with a Western solution. And missionaries do that a lot. We're, we're learning now and getting better at it, but it's still a problem. Mm-hmm. It was a big problem then, created all kinds of confusion. But what's interesting was prior to the fall of the Iron Curtain, um, the churches worked together a lot. If you know, if they were in about proximity, they would they would work together, support each other, help each other. Yeah. Um, and because they didn't compete because there was nothing to compete for. Mm, there was that's nothing an interesting. Right. And yeah, then once once things start changing, so let's say that you're you know, you're at Billy Bob's church, you know, of of uh of Eastern Russia, and then there's uh, Jim Bob's church of Eastern Russia. And maybe Jim Bob's Church of Eastern Russia is connected to some really generous missionaries in the United States. So they come over and they bring money and they bring food, and they bring clothes, and they buy the pastor a car and and do all and maybe buy a bunch of Bibles for the church. They bless them all with all these things, and then but Jim Bob's Church over here or Billy Bob's Church gets nothing. So Jim Bob's Church gets all this stuff. Billy Bob's Church gets nothing. Now the people are like, listen, we love you, Pastor Billy Bob. You've been a great pastor to us. You've done a great you've done great ministry for us all through this persecution. But look, we're hungry and we need clothes. And Jim Bob's church has that stuff. And so they all migrate to, go over there. to where the stuff is. And that's where the competition begins. Mm. Now we're competing for people and we're competing who gets more stuff. And in fact I experienced that when I was pastoring because what would happen is You'd get these random letters that would come, or because uh, this is kind of pre-email or early email. Once in a while, it was email, but it was mostly letters. You get a letter from the from a Russian country, and it was you know usually broken English, and but it had been written, and it was addressed to me personally at my church. We've heard about your ministry. <laughs> I'm like pressing X for doubt. Like, oh, we've I heard doubt about that. your ministry, <laughs> and we would love for you to come minister to us. Well, what these pastors realized was. If this kind of nobody pastor, which that was me, in uh, in the United States, he's going to come on his own dime. He's going to bring, and he's not going to expect to be paid, and he's going to bring a financial blessing. And you might think, well, I'm just at a little church. I can only bring $1,000. But to them, that was That's like huge deal. $100,000 to us or more. So yeah. it was a huge thing. And they're do- doing that today. I have a friend that got five of those from India last week. Uh, but what they so what they were doing was they were motivated to do something that was kind of shady because they were in now this thing of competition where mm. the lifting of persecution had allowed for competition to come in and now the churches were all trying to get money and get resources and grow so that they could get people. Yeah. Yeah. One pastor said prior to the persecu- pr- prior to the um, persecution lifting in the former Soviet Union. He would have a, a evangelistic outreach, and 100 people would come to it, and 97 would get saved. He said after uh, persecution lifted, he'd have an evangelistic outreach, 100 people would come to it, and three would get saved. The other 97, though, would stick around to get the free food and clothes. Wow. Yeah, things really change. So persecution really simplifies things, mm-hmm. and it makes... It creates unity. And it creates unity, and it also makes church and ministry life simple. Yes, because there are a few primary ways that that manifests itself, but we can see that in persecuted countries, 
church and ministry, um, they don't become about the programs. They don't become about what are all of these things that we can offer. That just goes out the window because, you know, all you're able to focus on is serving the people that are in your church the best that you can, preaching the gospel, reading the word, worshiping together, that's it. The worship becomes less about being a concert, how great are the singers, how great are the instruments, how great is our lighting, how great is the sound, and it becomes about we're all here together lifting up our voices as one, uh, singing to the Lord. You know, it talks about in Colossians three fifteen through 16, let the peace of God rule in your hearts to which also you were called in one body and be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And that's what church and that's what worship becomes about when you're under persecution. The pastors, their goal changes because they're not concerned with being entertaining. They're not concerned with being funny. They're not concerned with being charismatic. In most cases, they're not even concerned with, with being seeker sensitive because the people that are at the church are going to already be Christian. So it all comes down to true and simple fellowship. Yeah, you know, I would I would add, I'm thinking about church as you're saying that. I'm thinking about how we do ministry. And there's been such a movement in the last 20 years to, be, to view, we, we refer to the people that come to our church as guests. Oh, yeah. We give them kind of the Disneyland treatment. We want to make sure they have a good experience. You know, um, the Purpose Driven Church, uh, Rick Warren's uh, book, had a real influence on that, how to be really a good, you know, a good uh, experience for the people that come. And what you wind up is you wind up with social club participants, Mm -hmm. a lot of them. People that are there for the program. Right, and And we found out during COVID when, when a third of the church kind of said sayonara, that those were the ones who'd been really more attracted to all of those kinds of things than to Jesus. And that was an example of what happens during persecution. Right. Because imagine that the only consequence they're viewing is, oh, well, you know, they said we can't have church because it's not safe or whatever. Imagine all the people that left at that time. Let's think about how many will leave when the government says it's now illegal to have church, and if we see you having church, we're going to put you in jail. Right. So it's interesting to think about that. Right. And even the fellowship becomes pure and it becomes sweet. The pastors in persecuted countries often are the ones who go and do discipleship with individual families. That's their mm, job during the yeah. week. And the families only, the people only gather together really on Sunday. And depending on the level of persecution, the gathering together can be a, you know, a 12 hour process of people kind of trickling in, having a meeting. When they sing, they sing at a whisper. And then uh, and they and they speak in hushed tones, and then them trickling out. And of course, in, in modern context, we were, we want them to know: don't bring your cell phone, so the government yeah. can't track your location. Um, but this is this is so so. The gospel gets real simple. Doctrine gets real simple when there's persecution, and all these points of division fall away. Persecution makes the church and ministry really simple. It just is what it is. You know, we heard a, a sermon on Sunday, and I was so impressed by the sermon because the the pastor just basically read scripture and then gave an ex, ex, expounded upon it. There was no he didn't qualify anything. 
He didn't apologize for the Bible. He didn't put on a big show and scream and shout. He was not entertaining at all. He wasn't trying to make jokes, trying to didn't be make overly one charismatic. He yeah. was not charismatic. But the word of the Lord stands on its own, and the content of his message was powerful. And so, um, you know, I think that that's what we see in the persecuted church, is we see that the person leading is really just reading the Bible, expounding upon what it means, and trying to lead people closer to Jesus. It becomes very simple uh, and all the complication. Uh, what else does, do you think persecution does in, to simplify Christian Christian existence. I would say, I would say third and finally, persecution makes Christian life simpler. So even outside of church life and ministry life, it just makes Christian life in general simpler for many reasons. One of them is that Christians who are under persecution aren't inundated with resources and books and videos and YouTube channels and blogs and every which thing on every topic and from every possible opinion and viewpoint yeah because there are some good ones out there and there are some terrible ones and even even with the ones that are good sometimes having so many extra biblical resources takes away from the time that we actually spend in god's word because we're so focused on what these really smart pastors and really smart authors and what they have to say about these biblical topics that we neglect to actually read the Bible for ourselves because we think those people are so much smarter or know so much more. You know, it's funny because we started off saying, hey, we're not talking about this spiritual discipline of simplicity. Um, we're talking about simplicity caused by persecution and how it impacts uh, the gospel, how it impacts ministry, and how it impacts Christian life. But there's an interesting, there's an interesting correlation um, to this because when we have all of these varied viewpoints that we can look at and all these varied voices, it accomplishes something quite sinister. It separates us from Jesus mm. because it's kind yeah. of like I um, read a, a thousand books about karate, but I never do practice my forms or go out and spar. So I'm really not actually learning karate. I'm learning about karate. Yep. And we have all of these resources that teach us about Jesus but if they are not functioning to draw us nearer to and connect us to Jesus in a real way, they are worthless. Yeah. You know, in fact, we made the, we've made the commitment that we don't want to participate in any kind of ministry anywhere that does not have the ultimate purpose of connecting people to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Because the smaller that gap is, there's always going to be a gap between us until we're in heaven because we're imperfect and we're growing and we're changing. But the smaller that gap becomes, the greater Jesus' influence on our lives becomes, and the more we become like, like him, him, and we begin living the Jesus life in the world. And if we, uh, if, if when you get into the persecuted church and they lose all those distracting voices, now they go to the book of Jesus, if they can get it, right? Which is why, right. which is why our Bible courier ministry is so, so important, incredibly important. Because so many, because they need to get those Bibles to people, and they get that Bible, they open it up, they read them for themselves. The Holy Spirit, God, does the work of helping translate and helping understand. Uh, and sure, they may not know that the cultural context uh, that 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 has an impact on how the woman caught in adultery, uh, you know, how there's some special meaning there, or they may not know the cultural context of what's going on when Mary and Joseph are going, you know, to try to find a place to to give birth to Jesus, but 
the principles of Scripture, the truth of Scripture, will come through to them uh, by the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, it's just so much more simple and also, at the same time, so much more powerful and effective. Right, because when we're talking about persecution making things simpler, it's simplifying, but it's making it more potent. If you could think about, say, if you had... You know, I'm trying to think of an example, but if you had a, you know, something like vanilla extract, try drinking vanilla extract on its own. I have. (laughs) That stuff is insane. Like it's so, but when you put it into a mixture, it becomes so diluted that you just have kind of like essence of vanilla. Right. Oh, that's good. But that potency that's in that original bottle is not there when it gets mixed with all this other stuff. And so when we're talking about persecution making things simple, persecution is really preserving the potency of true Christian faith, preserving the potency of the gospel. Because you're no longer concerned with, you know, which church do I go to and which of these million programs should I join and which of these groups should I be a part of and should I volunteer here and should I read this book or this book and if I read books by this author, does this mean that I have to believe with this doctrinal point? Right. How does that work? There's no more of this, you know, if I want to get closer to God, I need to read eight disciplines for spiritual growth, ten steps to a better me. That all goes out the window and the Christian experience becomes simply about prayer Worship and the word and fellowship and fellowship both, but I uh, both corporately and individually. (laughs) So, and it's it's worshiping God in word and in deed. So, we're you know, it's about worshiping the Lord. Uh, actually, you know, we think musically or through prayer or what have you, but also through what we're doing, right? Um, we say that presenting our bodies is a living sacrifice. It becomes about the word because we're seeking to be transformed by the word of God and seeking to live out its truth. So I want to give a final word, a uh, final thought in the next 15 to 20 seconds to translate this to the harder way. Because the harder way is the way that we choose to walk the way of faith to prepare us for a time when we don't have choices, when mm. persecution yes, well said. becomes greater and more intense. And here's what I would say. We can choose simplicity now by digging our heels into the dirt and refusing to divide over secondary doctrines, by refusing to be swayed by programs and and light shows and those kinds of things, by being faithful to where God calls us to be, by being more concerned with where the Lord wants me to be in church than with where I get the most out of it, to being contributors. Uh, The harder way requires of us, if we're going to walk by faith, to look at even church, even doctrine, even programs, even relationships, and all of that through the lens of faith, and to say, I don't know how we can all coexist and be united in Christ Uh, with all of these varying beliefs and perspectives, but God knows. I don't know, but God knows. Amen. The seven words of faith. And I say we should leave it at that. Say God bless you guys, and we will catch you next week. God bless. Take care. Thank you for listening to The Harder Way Podcast. If you were encouraged by this episode, please consider sharing it with a friend or leaving us a review. To be the first to know when we publish new episodes, subscribe to the Harder Way podcast on your favorite platform. Until next time, 
remember the words of Christ. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven.